Hey, it's Greg. This is the Square Pizza Pod, cooked up by Shermco. Hey everyone, it's Julia again. I'm excited to bring you another episode of the Square Pizza Pod. This episode is near and dear to me as the guest on this podcast is from my alma mater. Greg is in conversation with Dan Lugo, but he is known to me as President Lugo of Queen's University of Charlotte. In this episode, we cover Dan's work in higher education surrounding being a first college generation student, successfully fundraising $750 million, the significance of being the first racial minority to serve as president at Queen's, and so much more. I hope you guys enjoy this one. You're in for a real treat. Dr. Lugo, how are you today, sir? I'm doing really well, Greg. Great to see you. And thanks for having me on the podcast. So interesting. There's a there's a visual element and this is actually going to be an audio <laughs> thing eventually. Huh? We, we try our best to keep up with technology for the kids here. Um, Cover so all the bases. There you go. That's right. Um, appreciate you joining the Square Pizza Pod. Excited to kind of dive in and uh, feature your work and just learn more about you. It's my pleasure. Uh, and hopefully I won't put your audience to sleep. Oh, no, no, no. Not worried about that at all. Um, you know, as you know, I'd like to start hopefully with uh, some fun intro to the podcast here, but rumor going around, you just got back from vacation. Is that true? Yeah, that's that's definitely right. Probably and, a well-deserved uh, vacation, I'd you, imagine. You can tell my, my, my uh, 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 tropical glow. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Still around. Uh, I got to spend some time uh, down on the Pacific coast of uh, Costa Rica with my family mm. and you know, I don't know if you heard, but it, it, it was a tough time uh, in higher education for the past uh, a couple of years. And uh, this was our first vacation, actually, in three years. So it was oh, great to get away. The weather was great. The beach was great. And I'm, I'm rearing to be back. And I'm back in the office and back in the south. That's great. Um, you know, vacation is always good to reflect like anything else. So can we ask about maybe your one favorite moment or meal while on vacation or destination? You know, my, my favorite moments, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I had a great time uh, uh, jet skiing up and down the coast of, of Costa Rica and, and visiting mm. some, some islands and caves. And uh, that, that, that's probably the, the funnest moment. Um, but uh, just spending time on, on the beach and thinking of life and catching up on, you know, my, my own uh, thoughts on what we've been going through and and, and building some excitement about uh, the future uh, is yep. probably the most productive part. That's great. That's good to hear. Again, I'm sure we'll deserve quality time. Um, and, you know, maybe a bit tangential, but I thought our research was complete on you. And then, of course, hopped on the Twitter machine and then saw in your bio, quote, a bit obsessed with big storms. Quote. <laughs> so <laughs> feels too good not to engage on that question. So tell us tell us more about that. Yeah, you know, maybe it's, it's because of my background uh, growing up in the islands. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm from St. Croix, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and, uh, you know, people uh, mark their their age by which hurricanes they experienced. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, grew up on another island, Long Island, New York, and, you know, uh, Hugo hammered uh, St. Croix and it also hammered uh, Long Island. Um, so I don't know, I've, I've always been obsessed with that. And then, then you go out and you spend some time in the Midwest and, and that, that, especially the North central plains, that's, that's the currency there is talking yep. about weather. Uh, so I, I've always been, uh, the guy that's got 18 versions of, of, of the weather radar on my phone. That's good. <laughs> um, but didn't officially go into meteorology. Is that right? 
No, no, no. That that wasn't a career choice. It's just a uh, a side passion. Um, decided uh, that that wasn't wasn't the course of direction. But you know, uh, I. I'm a, a, a grower uh, and a, a lifelong learner. So who knows? Maybe there there's go. a future episode of me, uh, you know, working the green screen and uh, talking about storm fronts. They're here first. I love dropping breaking news on the Square Pizza Pod. It's great. Um, and going to get back, you know, I think to you and your really professional and personal journey here in a bit. But, I think you know, currently and stands out to me as a much former student athlete many moons ago. Um, but as you serve as a president of Queens, you have four Queens student athletes heading to Tokyo for the Olympics, which seems remarkable. Um, so I'd love how to awesome know. is that? Yeah, I mean, how, how incredible, awesome right? Is that? And, and how and how many schools, right, can can make that claim, right? Yep. We we proudly sport around our campus uh, the the Olympic logo um, and the claim that uh, Olympians are made here because yep. it's true, time and well. time again. And we've got four. Four Queens athletes that'll be in Tokyo, um, you know, Annabelle Knoll, Marius Cush, uh, Felix Duchamp, uh, and Hannah Aston. And um, we couldn't be more proud. Um, it's it's a, a tribute to the type of student athlete experience that, that we promote here, that people from all over the world come to have that type of in-classroom and out-of-classroom experience. Um, and the sky's the limit to what you can achieve um, yep. while getting that type of dual training here at Queen. So we, we will uh, be proudly, you know, rooting for all of their uh, accomplishments in the upcoming weeks. Do you get to go as an ambassador for the university when that happens? You know, that's really interesting. Um, <laughs> in, in original scheduling, I, I mean, to, to, to tell you a, a, a cool story. Yeah, please. Uh, we had a, um, a, a communications, uh, so our, our night school of communications created a partnership um, with the folks at Toyo uh, University mm. in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. And when it was on schedule, right, pre-pandemic, we actually were going to be there just like uh, we were down there in an academic and communications capacity in Rio. Um, so it, we, it was actually on the original plan for a group of non-athlete students, but uh, people that were focused on the, the communications and marketing experience and the social, uh, sociological and sociology experience of, of the impact of the Olympics uh, on host cities, yep. uh, we, we were going to be down there and, and kind of uh, really diving into the whole experience and communicating out about that experience. So the pandemic changed that plan in a, in a really unfortunate way. Sure. Yeah. I mean, nonetheless, pretty incredible, especially, you know, I went to a small school as well. So to be able to promote for Olympians is great. And also side note, but now I'm remembering, um, I always call her Miss Sherry because I messed up her last name, Swarthart, your athletic director was my colleague in a leadership Charlotte program for those in Charlotte oh, might be aware of that. She was, I think the assistant AD. Um, but now I think she, she is the formal AD. And so, uh, a pretty remarkable accomplishment under her achievement as well. So shout out to Sherry. Shout out to Sherry for sure. One of, one of the best, uh, ADs in the land. And, uh, you know, and by the way, she's pretty humble about her own experience. We're talking about a division one athlete played basketball yep. in Michigan state. Um, yep. and we're lucky to have her. That's actually, yeah, we always go off course, as you can tell, but that's a great point because I think we, you know, that program was a year, two years. And I don't think she told us until probably, you know, 18 months into the 24 month experience. And we were like, Sherry, like that's something I need to know. Right. And 
Um, but nonetheless, I think she has records when I Googled her and everything else. She, she could fill it up. She pretty remarkable. Up, she, she, she wasn't shy around the basket. <laughs> um, okay, speaking of being shy, now we got to turn to you to, uh, to learn more about, you know, your remarkable experience and what makes you so great currently. And I think, you know, what stood out as we were learning more about you, um, first generation college graduate, um, which is really important aligns with the work we do at Shermco, but also many of the guests on the podcast. So, you know, definitely want to learn more about that. And also the interesting transition from IP lawyer, intellectual property lawyer to higher ed, um, yeah. which is not necessarily maybe, uh, a, a transition you planned or a transition that many people see going from A to B. Uh, so I'd love for you to pick either one of those and, and tell us more. Yeah, you know, um, so I am proudly a first-generation college uh, attender as well as a first-generation college graduate. And um, I, I, I would say that, you know, you used a, a really powerful four-letter word that um, really wasn't a part of my uh, youthful experience coming out of high school and even my college experience, plan. Um, <laughs> when, you're, when you're a first generation college attender, oftentimes you don't have that kind of peer or family network um, that, that gives you the type of modeling of what's possible or even the, the, the conversations to have about, you know, how do you explore certain things? Um, I had, you know, two of the, the smartest people on the planet as my parents, but uh, neither one of them went to college. Uh, they, they, they valued education. My, you know, both sides of my family valued education. And there was no question that I was going to go to college, but, you know, navigating how to get there, which one, why, all of that stuff. So a lot of my choices, um, I'm very proud of the alma mater that I, my alma mater that I went to. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, out in Minnesota and provided me a, a world-class education. Um, but it, I went there sight unseen. And, and guess what? Coming out of college, we don't have what we have here at Queens University of Charlotte, yep. which is a robust curricular approach and expert co-curricular co and experiential approach towards learning what are the career opportunities? How do you use this great education you know, out in the world, yep. you know, back in the day, you went to a good school, they say, we're giving you a great education, go figure it out, you'll figure yep. it out. You know, luckily, that day is over. So I kind of as a default went to law school, mm -hmm. went to the University of Minnesota Law School and, mm -hmm. um, and didn't love it much, to be quite honest with you. But mm -hmm. you know, stubborn, keep plowing forward, be unstoppable, came back to New York and was as you, you highlighted an intellectual property attorney that that worked on licensing yeah. you know rights in the entertainment business so copyrights trademarks things related to music and film and hmm. all of that kind of stuff and met some really cool people and and there's a little bit of a thread there i like yeah. working with artists in particular not particularly hmm. the companies but artists yep. people that were you know moving in their career to truly leverage their talents and to reach kind of another level. And I think that same thing is true of what I enjoy about higher education, right? Meeting someone that's here and with, you know, great education propels themselves into sure. a great destiny. I practiced law for nine years and, you know, the, the, the bad joke is, you know, I, I liked it for four, figured it took five <laughs> years to figure out what I really want to do with my life. And, I mean, it's pretty good for somebody that didn't like law school to get four good years of, of enjoying it. It's not too bad. Hey, those backstage passes are pretty cool. That's, yeah. That's it. You gotta, you, when you're hanging out in the show and, you know, you're, you're, you're standing side stage, that, that's kind of fun. You, you, you eventually, you need more than that out of life. But, um, 
Uh, so, you know, I, I took an incredible, you know, leap of faith that when I kind of assessed my life and what had been transformative to me, it was higher education. Mm -hmm. uh, so my, my family and I, we, we went on this path 17, now 18 years ago to get into higher education. And, and that's where actually for the first time in my life, I actually started to plan like, mm -hmm. okay, now, now that I found the area that I, that resonates with me, that wakes me up in the morning, makes me really excited. How do I, how do I, you know, create a, a career path that takes me into leadership. Yep. And that's what the last 17 years has been all about. That's really incredible. A lot of things to break down. I mean, I think I've shared previously, I'm uh, also first one in my family to attend and graduate college and still remember mom and dad and myself sitting at, well, I, I shouldn't say because I really didn't help much, but like sitting at the kitchen table, going through the FAFSA forms and understanding the process of college. And it's, it's intimidating, right? Like it's totally. hard, it's challenging, it's intimidating for adults and for kids at the same time. So I'd venture to guess that you going through that experience and the seat you currently sit in provides a lot of empathy for you to others and the rest of your team in those kind of searching through what higher ed looks like for them. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, Greg, I shared that experience in um, the quite intentional ways that in systemic ways um, that access um, to, to education, access to higher education is complicated uh, in that that has a real chilling effect in particular yep. on on students who come from first generation backgrounds, lower socioeconomic backgrounds, entirely overrepresented by communities of color uh, in the United States. And and in, in most cases we've learned are completely unnecessary. Right. Um, and I'm glad we're, we're we're seeing progress and I'm glad to be one of the people that helps to shape progress on campuses and through national advocacy about how to take those barriers down and expand access. Uh, you know, that's that's um, in the best interest, not only of students, but it's in the best interest of our nation. Um, in, a, in a globally competitive world, we just need uh, our talent uh, uh, to, to, to meet the needs of our 21st century economy. And all of these barriers are just unnecessary. It's, it's, it's you know, the equivalent of uh, some folks will criticize, you know, all of the uh, bureaucracy, right, in government and how mm -hmm. that has a chilling effect on business. All of the things that we're, we're trying to overcome in higher education that, that depress access um, have, are, are really parallel uh, arguments. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I want to get to more about specifics about what you all are doing at, at Queens within that. But before, you know, you've had a really interesting career before you got to Queens, I think a lot of people would say the interesting fact I want to pull out from Colby College where you sat um, and we'll admittedly ask you a, an unfair question, but let's just play along here. Um, led a $750 million uh, fundraising campaign, largest in liberal arts history. So from somebody else who went to liberal arts school, um, impressive nonetheless, but also like maybe you can share some notes with the College of Worcester. Uh, so outside <laughs> of you having a great team and you being incredibly smart and everything else, what's the secret to raising $750 million? Uh, great questions. And I, I, I think you can, you know, believe it or not, as you, you tell by looking at the market and thinking about mm -hmm. places like Amazon, Google, Apple, all the rest of that, and thinking about what, what's happening in transformational wealth generation. Um, money is particularly nearly infinite. Um, what is finite uh, is the, you know, our, 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 our sometimes big ideas, um, the combination 
of big ideas, great leadership teams that can execute on those big ideas and really making the case that, that higher education is the conduit to make society propel itself forward. And, you know, the planet's really aligned incredibly well up there um, at Colby with uh, an incredible uh, a leadership team and, and singular leader and the president of that institution that created with that board and with that community uh, a vision for how that place can make a bigger impact than just being a liberal arts college that they are, how they can truly be an important place in higher education and society. And when you do that and you articulate that well and you prove that you can actually execute on those big ideas, you, you find that people want to invest with you, right? Sure. You can get, you know, a, a modest amount of support, quote unquote. You know, there, you know, you can talk to your alumni, please support us. Yeah. You know, when you want to do something transformational, you're in a different conversation. You're talking about investments, hmm. right? Let's talk about what you want to do, what your legacy is, and what you think can really move the world and move the nation and provide something that's truly different. And that's a conversation that's deeper, more dynamic uh, um, than support, right? And that's that's what we did there. And that's what we're starting to do here at Queens. Hmm. That's, yeah, that's powerful. I think, you know, and the reason I asked one, it's incredible, but two, I think, you know, a lot of our listeners are nonprofit leaders, for-profit leaders, school leaders, and resources always come into play, right? Whether they're raising money or writing grants or what have you. So I, I think that element is very really important, but two key words I heard that I'm going to ask you to speak more about her to say transformational, but also storytelling. And it feels like those two things, almost backwards planning from like, this has to be transformational. We have to tell stories in order for it to be transformational. Uh, those things really stuck out to me as you're responding to that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think, I don't know that I was intentional on that, but I'm glad those resonated. <laughs> um, because I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, you know, as you think of your mission, um, supporting your mission um, has competes with everyone else, right? Supporting your mission. And there are lots of nice people that are doing really important things. Um, and you need to do a great forecast and how you can articulate the case for support. But if you really, you know, position yourself um, and articulate impact, you know, um, and that's where the storytelling comes in. You've got to show the impact. You know, people cut a check about this big and I'm for when it turns you know, to audio, right. it's a pretty small <laughs> space between my hands. They cut a check for support about that big, right? To, to make an impact, to say, hey, I want to achieve that. Mm -hmm. When you show that the check needs to be this big, that, you know, it's, it's, it's arithmetic, right? That we can't make that impact. We can't achieve that story without a larger set of investment. Um, and I think the trap is in, in, Kind of, I I would say, old school fundraising is is how do you articulate the case for support? Mm -hmm. um, you you actually really need to articulate something that's that's bigger, more important. Mm -hmm. um, the growth of philanthropy, the growth of competition in philanthropy, the growth of you know people really wanting to see how their dollars make an impact has gone far beyond what support and articulation of support can do. It seems like. The, the creativity in which you bring to currency, but also at Colby, maybe all hanging out with all the artists and musicians and creatives rubbed off on you in, 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 in those times as well. Yeah, yeah, you know, I think that's, that's I'm glad that, thanks for highlighting that. Um, <laughs> you know, you hang out with creative people. I'm, I, I, I'm a kind of creative person, but, but I 
what I really think I do best is create the conditions for creative people to thrive, yep. right? I think that's my job here at Queens. Mm. It's how do I position this university to allow our students and our faculty to do their best work mm. and to create transformational scholarship and experiences and learning that propel them and this university to heights that we can only imagine in the future. Yep. Um, you know, so I, I have a, um, a, an obsession and a passion uh, in living vicariously through folks that, that, you know, whether it's on the playing field or, or in the orchestra or uh, whatever it is, or in the lab um, that are going to push boundaries. And, and I want to support them and make the case uh, for how we create that, that, that undergirding landscape to allow that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Just for, to, you know, remind the audience, you currently are the president of Queens university here in Charlotte and tell just tell us more like um, how you position those students that staff all aspects of the university to be creative and really offer an experience. What I imagine you tell others is unlike others. Well, that's definitely a work in progress, right? So I am proud to be the 21st uh, president of this great university mm -hmm. uh, whose history dates back to 1857 um, truly distinctive, historic, great, great, great educational institution that has grown, adapted, thrived, um, diversified in really exciting ways. And I've been here for two years. Um, uh, you know, the vast majority of that has been in a pandemic, but also charting a course and a vision um, that, that positions us to be much more national, to grow our reach, to, 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 to grow uh, the scale of our programs, to grow the size of our programs and the number of students that we can impact. We have a powerful, powerful educational and co-curricular experience here. And it's, it's just unfair for us to not give more opportunities, right, for students uh, to thrive in, in this environment. And so that's, that's where we're at. We've been working with our board of trustees and our broader community of thinking of our, our strategic plan and, and vision for the future. And, and now we're ready to kind of go to the market with a lot of those big ideas um, that, that are logical for us and sequential for us, but then position us uh, to be what Charlotte needs. Charlotte is an incredible city and we need to strengthen our, our approach to higher education and to build up you know, our existing you know, higher education institutions and, and build up our capacity and build up our brand so that we're seen as one of the best cities in the country in all ways, you know, not just for business, but for education, for the type of talent we can address. Um, and that's going to make us sustainably one of the best cities in the world. Yeah. Yeah. That creative class being produced by key anchored universities, right. Of any of the, the highest performing or most artistic or most highest achieving cities, right. Those anchored universities are always so critical to that. And so knowing um, you all are positioning yourself in that way. It makes so much sense. Yeah, I mean, we it's an opportunity that we need to lean into. And I think one of the case uh, uh, things that we're going to make a case about is, you know, investing with us and investing in us being a stronger, more robust player is an investment in Charlotte. Because, mm -hmm. you know, as you go around the country, right, you know, you, you think about Baltimore, hey, you think about Johns Hopkins, you think about Atlanta, you think of Emory, you think about uh, Cleveland, you think about Case West, you think about Pittsburgh, you think about Carnegie Mellon. Uh, just, I think when you think about Cleveland, you think about the College of Worcester, never. You know I what? You do. I don't think so you there's think competition. About <laughs> there's competition about who you think about, right? No, I know. Um, Friendly joke. You know, Friendly joke. 
but it's but when you go when you go you know uh, to San Francisco and Chicago and, yep. and, and Boston, you say, hey, think about uh, a Charlotte. There's there's a brand that needs to elevate itself um, on the private sure. uh, higher education side, and 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 we we are that, and we want to to truly truly own it, earn it, and you know lean into that. Yeah. Um, I, I appreciate that. I think, you know, I'm going to push you a little bit here. You already broke a little bit of breaking news saying you might be a meteorologist here at some point in your career. Uh, maybe breaking news number two, you alluded to some big ideas um, that you're going to bring to market. Are you able or comfortable uh, giving the listening audience more insight about maybe what one or two of those ideas looks like? Oh, you know, we're, we're still at the stage where, you know, we, we're, we're talking to our, our, okay. our early investors, right? So, you know, think about the private equity model, right? We're, we're, we're uh, you know, uh, talking to those, those, those inner circle folks. folks. So, um, but, you know, it's, it's really about positioning ourselves to create programs that will make a dynamic impact on the city. You know, it's, you're not going to be shocked, right, with recent investments that we've made uh, around the arts, like the Gambrell Center, yep. that we want to position ourselves as a leader, right, in the arts community. It's not going to shock you that in light of the growth of, of, of data-centered uh, uh, and technology-centered uh, uh, opportunities and positions and talent that's needed in the city, that we're talking about building deep programs, you know, in data analytics it's not going to surprise you, you know, when we, uh, uh, you know, are, are, are concerned about the scale of our model that we're talking about how do we lean into being truly Queens University of Charlotte versus, mm -hmm. versus Queens University of Myers Park mm -hmm. and scaling where we do our education, you know, around the city. So, I mean, those are some hits, but, the, you know, the big hits is that we're, we're going to be in the business of, of, of growth and being as as disruptive and as excited about that growth um, as we can be. Yep. I appreciate you giving us a little bit there. Um, I think, you know, also, I think needs to be said outside of the incredible work you're doing, but the significance of your role, um, I believe as the first minority to lead the university or the Queens University, as well as the first uh, minority male to lead Queens University and how important that representation is for you to sit in that seat. Can you talk more about that? Happy to, happy to, and 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 and, and although I, I would say that you know that wasn't a deep conversation during the search process, mm -hmm. it's it's undeniable, right? Um, recognizing that uh, moment and what that means uh, for our community, um, I'm really proud of our board of trustees that in a really competitive pool um, that they saw you know not only my experiences but who I am yep. and as as truly an asset um, and, and leading this uh, university into the 21st century that, that I was a good fit, right? Even though they hadn't had a leader with my background mm -hmm. that I could still connect the past to the future uh, in really, really strategic ways. Um, it does make me reflect on you know, my experience and my family that, that did value and does value higher education so much really kind of almost a pop culture moment, you know, as I, yep. I you know, my family, we, we were one of the first, we had to see In the Heights, you know, because we're, we're fans of that musical, we're fans yep. of Lin-Manuel Miranda. And, you know, to think of um, that kind of, that was a part of my experience, that, that intergenerational, you know, play. And I, mm. I think back to my grandparents, um, you know, who didn't have formal education, but yet 
oh my gosh, education, higher education. Yeah. I am truly their wildest dreams to, yeah. to think that, you know, their grandchild had become a president, right, of a university. Yeah. You know, someone is partying nonstop somewhere. <laughs> That's right. You know, they, they would be happier than I am because sure. of it. And, and that was kind of a moment for me. And, and that's yeah. why it's important to, to reflect on that. But I think even more important, it's, it's important to our student body. Yep. I think it's important to be for, for folks that are first generation, that are from lower socioeconomic background, uh, uh, backgrounds to see and model, to see what's possible, to say, mm -hmm. hey, that Dan Lugo guy comes from a, from a path that, that I'm familiar with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether I want to be a, a president or not, that you can get to, you know, the C-suite, you can get to truly live out your dreams, um, you know, by sheer force and will of effort and finding supportive communities um, that are going to support you, you know, on your pathway. So, you know, I, I, I do recognize it. I don't think we, we, we fixate on it, but mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not ashamed of celebrating that. Yeah, no, nor should you or your family be, as you said. Um, yeah, I want to co-sign everything you said as well. And also, you know, reflecting on our work a little bit in higher ed, but mostly in K-12, we've been fortunate to work with a number of organizations working to diversify the K-12 teaching force. And within that, knowing the systemic barriers that are currently in place that they and us and many others are working to break down, but also just data, right? So it tells us nationally K-12 you know, less than 2% of K-12 teachers are black males. Um, and of course, the flip side of that, you know, nationally 60, 70% of public schools are filled with minority students and, and, and black males as well. Um, so would imagine if we scale that out to, to higher ed, um, those that sit in president seats um, across the country, not many look like you. So the importance of elevating your work and the um, legacy and success you've already had, I think is important to represent for those of others, but also those that aspire to be university presidents. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, the, the, the problem isn't on the talent side, it really is on the opportunity side. Oftentimes conversations around diversity, you know, that dated back to the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and, and, and you know, are evolving now was that, oh, it's a struggle to find the talent. It's actually really not. Um, I deeply believe that, that the United States has uh, both built and attracted a talent base that's incredible if we would truly empower them. And part of empowering them is this modeling and mentoring, right? How scary is it to think about our K-12 system that is now majority minority? And you just quoted figures there that are you know, shocking, right? That 2% of teachers, you know, might be, you know, African-American males. And, and so who, who, who do our, our, our students see, right? About the possibilities of themselves or the expectations that, you know, of course, of course I see, you know, African-Americans and Latino-Americans and Asian-Americans as high achievers. If you didn't see that, you know, in those formative years in the classroom and around, those educational institutions. So we've got a lot of work right now to, to get to, to truly build and fulfill, you know, uh, the supply of folks. And yes, to lift people up that are there um, so they can have an even bigger impact, right? So they can, can you know, in essence, their umbrella um, can, can, can expand. Um, and in the interim, while we have this dearth of supply, they can impact more people. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And not only is your job tough enough as a university president, but as many, well, really everybody, you had to go through a pandemic while leading a university. And certainly the challenges um, have been stated across, right, all sectors and just day-to-day life. Wondering in the midst of COVID, did you see any positives or were there any bright spots that happened from your leadership or from those of others on the university? I think there were a lot of bright spots, right? I think, you know, we, we are... Um, uh, oftentimes, we, we, we think of ourselves, we think of our communities, we think of institutions and individuals that truly being selfish. This was a, this was a moment that required um, universities and university communities to come together. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that it successfully happened everywhere. We see, we see examples of where people pulled apart, right? Where there was you know, festering doubt in leadership and choices and policy. And I'm proud of the Queens community and the way we lean together and um, I think exemplified and chased our motto, which is not to be served, but to serve, right? That, that happened a long, long time ago. And we had, we had an opportunity to truly put that on display. Really, really hard period of time, right? You know, there, the, the choices that we had to make, um, whether it was in the fall semester of staying virtual, um, the way we came back in the spring, um, there, there was so much that was hard on our staff, on our team and on our students um, that it was only because we have uh, ample amounts of goodwill that we can navigate through them. And, and we're not done with it, right? I mean, we're, we're approaching another year that there are choices to make and, and we're wrestling with those and, and, and moving forward. But I'm, I'm proud of the way our teams performed um, and from a staff and faculty perspective. Um, and let me tell you about a couple silver linings. Yeah, um, please. You know, what, what, the thing that I'm most excited about what COVID did uh, for the past two decades almost, you know, there's been, this, there's been this battle royale between online learning, place-based learning, you know, you know rock and sock and kind of, you know, punching game. Mm-hmm. And part of that really created these camps in the academy of folks, a small group who was very pro of thinking, how do we use this new media and technology to adapt how we teach and to teach better. And then and a, a much larger camp that was like, you know, that's letting the wolf into the hen house, you know, keep me away from, I want no part of that. That's not sure. my pedagogy. And you know what, what, the, what COVID did for us? It said everyone in the pool, everyone get in the pool, right? Mm-hmm. And you know what, what happened? We, that, you know, we, we didn't lose our way. We didn't lose our mission. What we learned is that, wow, hey, there are some really valuable things here. And there are some, some opportunities for us to think of things more hybrid mm-hmm. uh, in ways of learning. There's certain things that are truly, truly best in person and we need to get back to those ASAP. But there's certain things that can be done in terms of scaling access to our education and certain repetitive types of things that are part of learning that, you know, do you really need to do that in front of 30 people or 100 people in class all the yep. time? So I think we're going to kind of come into a moment and this here, here I'm calling this right. This yeah. is okay. we're going to come into a moment of higher education where we truly can say, what is, you know, a great 21st century education model. Yeah. Right. And it is going to be an answer that is a little bit more blended. And, and that's exciting. That is totally exciting. But but the other takeaway is, you know, place based learning is here to say. Go, go talk to a, a bunch of, you know, K through 12 kids and tell them about how excited they are to keep learning online. 
I'll tell you, that conversation is not going to go real well, real fast. I think you're right. Um, yep. But, but, but now that we can shed our political camps on, on this battle, let's get to finding out what's the best way, the most transformative way um, to create experience, to create pedagogy, and to really harness and elevate learning. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. I mean, from a leadership standpoint, I'm, I'm, you know, hearing you articulate either fight the change or go with the change, um, which I think is a staple of leadership, but also certainly highlighted during a pandemic. Yeah, I agree. Um, And also, you know, I keep going back to you as a, you know, IP lawyer, but you know, musically, right. If any artist dating myself when Napster came out or Spotify, if they fought these like streaming platforms, which a lot of them did, right, they weren't able to either reap the benefits or just spread their work to an, a wider audience. And whether, you know, we agree or not, those that did kind of were fluid with the change in music and in the creative ways, I think we're able to expand their work and do it. And so for your end and other university presidents who it's probably presumably making any of you uncomfortable, but to move with the change and adapt to it faster and ahead of it will put you and others in a much better place to serve students in the future. Yeah, I think that's so so really well said, Greg. And and boy, you can connect with some dots with me there because uh, I, I was there in that, that Napster fight. It, it literally at the time, I was I was representing Chuck D. And, oh, wow. and, and he was in, in, in combat with Lars Ulrich from Metallica about, yeah, Mars is like, oh my gosh, this you know these MP3s, they're 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 the death of us. Don't know what you know. You're almost you're 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 fighting nature. I mean, and that's what Chuck was saying. Yep. This is going to happen, folks. You either harness it and go with it, mm. or it's going to happen to you. You are either going to leave this boat, right? Think of yourself, whitewater rafting. Yeah. You know, there's no fighting to get back upstream. Sure, we got to go. But, what, what your expertise is 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 in in ensuring that you leave this boat in a way that still profits you and is enjoyable and all the rest of it. And, and a lot of people didn't get that. The music business didn't get that. I, I, it's a great parallel. I've never made it. So thank you. I should have been smarter than that. You've just connected the dots on that where it's the same thing, right? In education, right? Technology is real. The disruptive nature of it is happening. It's not whether it's going to happen. It's happening. The smartest places and the smartest people are going to, really, really be out front to figure out how do we use it in a way that preserves our mission, right? And keeps us uh, in a position of being the experts in providing that mission. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I always like Chuck D, but good to know he's opposing Lars and more of a philosopher and forward looking thinker <laughs> than, than others. So good to know. Um, so we actually have a guest question. This kind of ties well, I think, to what we were just talking about from Mark from Wagner College. He comes from the president's office of Wagner's co- or Wagner College as well. And I'll paraphrase it, but essentially is asking the question, how does higher ed stay relevant in the midst of kind of what you already said during a pandemic, during likely, you know, rising tuition costs, um, as well as kind of like alternative job training programs and kind of articulating, is this investment, the ROI worth, you know, a, a coding camp or something else? Um, so probably not a new question to you, but wondering in the midst of like your leadership and the innovative way you approach this work, how you would tell a colleague like Mark or others, um, how higher ed continues to compete. Yeah. You know, I, I, I know Mark, Mark, Mark was oh, a student at FM when I was there and boy, he's having a great career and I'm glad he's over there in the president's office at Wagner. And I think, cool. well, I, I, I think he, he, of course he comes with a tough question yeah. <laughs> because he's an FM guy and I'm like, this guy, this guy. Didn't let you off uh, easy, I know. No, this this is not an easy question, and but I think it's a really wise one. 
Yep. Um, and and I'm, I'm actually going to go with an answer that connects back to our early part of the conversation in some sure. ways. Um, but what, what we really, really need to do to ensure that we stay relevant is to change, mm-hmm. right? We, 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 we need to stop fighting this current and, and really say, how do we use this current? How do we use this moment of changing demographics, of disruptive technologies, um, of really um, um, uh, devastating polarity, right, politically, how do we become the, the answer to all of those things? We, we need to not move out of those challenges, but lean into those challenges, mm-hmm. right? And that's only gonna happen if we truly innovate. It's not by, you know, sitting back and, and, and you know, resting on our laurels of what we've always been. But we do have to tell the story of who we've been and who we are. Mm-hmm. Public good that higher education provides for our nation and for the world. And, and by the way, American higher education has an outsized impact on the world. If you think sure. of where the best scholarship, research, science, medicine, political, everything, it's totally skewed and overrepresented towards American higher education. And we've got to remind people of that and demonstrate that through storytelling. There isn't any, any better investment, yep. right? than investing in American higher education. And, and, and we've got history to prove it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't have to look you know, back in American history and think about the most disruptive conflict, right? The Civil War and out of it comes the Morrill Act. Yep. The Morrill Act built land grant colleges and universities yep. all over this country that propelled this nation to be the dominant agri- agricultural and uh, you know, industrial nation of that time. And we weren't before that. Trust me, I mean, we, we weren't on the cutting edge. We, we, we weren't England or France or any of those places, but we became quickly. If you think about World War II, and, I, and, and we definitely need to address the inequity of the benefits that came out of World War II. Yes, the GI Bill propelled this nation in powerful ways in making us the dominant business you know, uh, a, a place in the world, even though not all GIs came home, as we know, um, with, with open and welcome arms and access to the GI Bill. Right. We're, we're at another one of those moments. Yeah. This, 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 this conflagration, right? This, this, this uh, a tempest of factors of demographic change, of technolo- t- technological disruption, of political uh, um, challenges. We have to be, the society, we need to demonstrate through storytelling that you need to come back to us to figure our way together out of this. Um, and we need to advocate for, for much more investment. And, that, and that's how we'll stay relevant, by answering those tough challenges and questions. Yeah, yeah I think that was great. I'm sure Mark will appreciate that. I'm also you know, wondering too, and I don't know if you'll agree, but please disagree. You know, I'd imagine if and when universities, the ones that are most innovative and have this sort of leadership style you're, you're articulating, if they are able to adapt, they have what could be argued is just more assets to move faster, maybe not move faster, but at least move with the larger market share than a startup, right? So if, if Greg starts a, a startup to compete with Queens around one of your academic programs, it's going to take me time to build resources and, you know, build everything else in a, in a team. If, if universities that are, who have been around since the mid 1800s can follow leaders like you to adapt faster, to do more different models, varying price scales, et cetera, et cetera, 
you have the real estate, the team, the resources to move faster and have a bigger market share. So I'd imagine those that do it, to your point, instead of being scared, could move faster and do it in a way that has a lot more expertise than somebody that's just like trying to start it up. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's the opportunity. I think that is totally the opportunity. Um, but there are folks starting up, right? There is competition that's coming from lots of different angles and, and, and non-traditional places. You know, whether, whether are there company-based educational models, partnerships with Google, you know, everything under the sun is, is there. But um, we, we do, uh, we can't rest on our advantages as yep. you, you, know, you ideally you know, just noted that we have advantages. But if we leverage them, um, we, we can definitely be positioned to thrive. That's great. Really appreciate you being vulnerable and kind of going deep there. Um, I think, you know, really appreciate that part of your leadership. Um, I'm going to get you out of here, hopefully on a few, few fun questions or at least interesting questions. Um, um, and, and this one, maybe not as fun, but super, in, you know, serious. Um, when we think about bridging the gap around racial equity in education, whether it's K-12 or higher ed, um, and unfair to ask you for one thing, but we'll ask for one thing. Um, what comes to mind is something we should think about to bridge the racial equity and equality gap in education. Yeah, you know, I, I it's funny. I, I, I love that question and I love those conversations around them. And I've got an answer, right? Yeah. And, and I'm not going to do what every, you know, everyone would expect. Uh, I'm not going to say, oh, invest in Queens, invest in higher education. I'm actually going to say something different, right? There's, I think there's a new, there's a new baseline to equity. Right. There's so much that go into economic mobility and racial equity and all our income inequities and solving those challenges. You know, it's a healthcare issue. Right. It's it's a housing issue. It's a justice issue. It's all of those things. But you know what is actually new, but incredibly empowering to recognize as as fundamental to every one of those and the success of changing any of those. It's actual digital equity. Digital equity and inclusion. If we, so that's a massive problem. Yep. What we discovered in COVID is that privileges, privileged communities and neighborhoods have lots of high, access to high-speed internet. Yep. They have families that get them all the right devices. And you know what? Built into their homes and their environments and their schools, they have people that train them how to use those devices and that broadband. That's not true. And that's, that's been damaging, right, to educational outcomes, to people being able to qualify and manage their homes and manage their businesses and manage their accounts. And you really can't even chase those other problems in the 21st century unless you invest in 100% achievement of mm -hmm. digital equity. Here's the exciting part. When you look at the numbers, it's horrific. Right. It's absolutely horrific when you look in rural areas, you look at inner cities, you look at all that stuff. But can you tell me another problem that we could actually address that? Like if we really wanted to right, in the next two years, we could have 100 percent broadband access and everyone could have devices and training to be able to access that information. Yep. That would be transformative. Yep. And that so, you know, at Queens. We've got an organization and a program called Digital Charlotte that we want to expand into the Center for Digital Equity. And we're addressing exactly that. And we want to make Mecklenburg County and Charlotte the place that leads the nation in digital equity and digital inclusion. And as a result of having that baseline, anything's possible. Yep. And because you can get the information, 
You, you know, if, if someone gets online today and knows how to use online, let me tell you what they can do tomorrow. They can apply to college, they can get a job, they can access health records, they can do lots of things that they literally couldn't do the day before. This is an immediate answer. It's a solvable answer. You know, you can build housing um, and we have to, but you know what? That's a long tail thing, right? You can, you can address health inequities and you know what? That's critically important, but that's a long tail thing. If, if, I, if we need to do one thing, digital equity, digital inclusion across the board. Yeah, I really appreciate that answer. I'm, I'm not a scientist um, and I'm also not somebody's, you know, familiar with the inner workings of how to close the digital divide. But, you know, thinking if, if we as a country could go to the moon in the late 60s, I, I got to imagine we, we can figure out a way to connect everybody um, to the Internet. But that's, you know, that's uh, for people smarter, smarter than I. Um, well, we've, we've got we've got a bunch of those folks on our team and, uh, good. and we're, we're, we're willing to share and be that's a right. leader. That's really good. Um, the question everybody wants to know, President Lugo, what does square pizza remind you of? It reminds me of my youth. It reminds me of, of, of going to the pizza shop and get a Sicilian slice. Mm. That's what it reminds me of, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm a New Yorker and the dominant slice there is clearly, you know, the Neapolitan triangular mm -hmm. slice, which you of course need to fold, okay? Anyone that's out there, you gotta fold that before you eat it. <laughs> but when you wanted a treat, you know, you got that thicker yeah. square cut uh, Sicilian uh, style pizza. Um, so it, it brings back brings back my youth. So in your youth, it uh, it, it was a treat to use your words uh, a bit above uh, a normal traditional slice of pizza. That's exactly right. They they were thicker. They were they were um, I would say um, you know a, more filling. Right. They were they 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 had more heft to it. Right. Just like this podcast. More I mean, <laughs> Clearly, it just has more habits. There you go. Very well played. Very well played. Um, did they serve it in school, in elementary or high school in the New York area? Yeah, I mean, that's actually how pizza was in school. The, the, the school pizza was square or at least rectangular. So, yeah, you know, we at least, you know, yeah, longer story. We probably should have named it rectangle pizza, but, you know, we're, too, we're already too far into the square pizza. Um, but, we, you know, I've told the story before. We found out it's geographic that not every student – in public school across the country had access to this wonderful thing we know is rectangle or square pizza. Uh, turns out it was pretty um, geographically concentrated on the East Coast, not the West Coast, from our anecdotal research of 60 or so podcast episodes. I love it. Yeah, that's definitely how it was on Long Island. And, uh, you know, I, I ate lunch at school every single day. Um, didn't bring. I, I, I went in the school line and I love those square pizzas. Good. Well, we appreciate you taking time. We appreciate all you're doing for those here in Charlotte and students that attend Queens University, obviously in the Southeast, but all across the country and the world as well. So thanks so much, Dr. Lugo. Hey, I appreciate it, Greg. Thanks for having me on the podcast. And thank you for elevating, uh, you know, these important topics uh, to your audience and to the world. Our pleasure. Thanks so much for checking out the Square Pizza Pod, making a few selfish requests. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps spread the word about the podcast and share this with a friend. We appreciate it. Thanks.